Well, good morning, everyone. We are, as it always happens, after Tuesday or Wednesday, we rapidly hit Friday, and here we are. We have some, I think, some very interesting things to talk about this morning to conclude you with. You will have to look at Gog and Russia and some of those things, uh, hopefully on the handout. Look at that on your own. Definitely, I encourage your study for that as we've been trying to frame the context and support the argument that it's going to take a much bigger and massive army or invader in order to uh, allow Israel or to persuade Israel in the most harshest of sense to cry to her almighty, Yahweh. Now, I've been talking about the Syrian aspect uh, as a, uh, I think, likely conflict prior to Christ's return. And let's finally get to it because I've been talking to it talking about it for about three days. Isaiah chapter 17 is where we're looking at this. And what we're trying to affirm here and set up is that I think we would expect a conflict with the Palestinians. Uh, We know that the pullout of Gaza uh, has been delayed, but that was scheduled, I believe, for the 16th of August. Hamas is going to be filling the void. There have also been many reports that Al-Qaeda would like to have that as a base uh, in the Gaza Strip. So we know that you don't make peace with the Palestinians or the latter-day Philistines as the Philistines of yore. You have to subdue them as David and Jehoshaphat did. So what Hamas would like to do is rain grenades and gunfire and missiles, etc. as women and children are loading into trucks and leaving Gush Katif and leaving the Gaza. Of course, Sharon has put a line in the sand and said, if that occurs, we will respond in the, in the worst Uh, sort of way. Uh, Hamas and the Palestinians would love to be seen as driving the Jews from their land. That's how they would like to frame it for the the world view. So that could happen within days and months and Israel again is not going to lose in that battle. And then I think we I think there is a case to be made for a Syrian conflict of some degree and that's what we're going to look at right now. And this is all going to continue to fuel Israel's strength in her own hands because as we will finish today the unwalled villages accompanies a state of mind where none made them afraid and yet this is related to the trespass against the Almighty now Isaiah chapter 17 says this regarding Damascus and Syria the burden of Damascus behold Damascus is taken away from being a city and it shall be a ruinous heap the cities of Aurora are forsaken they, sh- they shall be for flocks which shall lie down, and none shall make them afraid. The fortress also shall cease from Ephraim and the kingdom from Damascus and the remnant of Syria. They shall be as the glory of the children of Israel, saith the Lord of hosts. And it shall come to pass that the glory of Jacob shall be made thin, and the fatness of his flesh shall wax lean. And skipping down to verse 6, Yet gleaning grapes shall be left in it as the shaking of an olive tree. Now we know this is very symbolic. An olive tree is linked to symbolically Israel. The shaking of this or the gleaning of these grapes, I would submit to you, is this cutting off of the two-thirds, this scattering of Israel. Of an olive tree, two or three berries in the top of the uppermost bough, four or five in the outmost fruitful branches thereof, saith the Lord God of Israel. At that day shall a man look to his maker, and his eyes shall have respect to the Holy One of Israel. So we notice the sequence here is that after that shaking, here is where they turn. Verse 8, And he shall not look to the altars, nor the work of his hands, 
Neither shall respect that which his fingers have made. And we can think armaments, we can think commerce, all of those things which uh, Israel would be depending upon themselves, either the groves or the images. In the day, or in that day, shall his strong cities be as a forsaken bough and an uppermost branch, which they left because of the children of Israel, and there shall be desolation. Because thou hast forgotten the God of thy salvation. Again, here's a consistent cause for this attitude and for this punishment. And has not been mindful of the rock of thy strength. Therefore shalt thou plant pleasant plants and shall set it with strange slips. In the day thou shalt make thy plant to grow, and in the morning shalt thou make thy seed to flourish. But the harvest shall be a heap in the day of grief and of desperate sorrow. Woe to the multitude of many people, which make a noise like the noise of seas, and to the rushing of nations that make a rushing like the rushing of mighty waters. Now here we have symbolic language that is indicative of Gentile nations. Many nations rushing together, many waters. In verse 13, the nations shall rush like the rushing of many waters, but God shall rebuke them, and they shall flee far off, and shall be chased as the chaff of the mountains. Now we know from Micah we heard the word sheaves, we know that Armageddon means a heap of sheaves in the Valley of Judgment. We look in Habakkuk and it says the threshing of the heathen. I mean, this is that place, Armageddon, where all these things are going to happen. You know, the grinding, the threshing of the heathen. And when it says, I tread the winepress alone, this is the Almighty manifesting Himself and His divine power. He's not going to work through another nation. He's done that in the past. He's not going to work through Britain. And like days of old, he's not working through Cyrus. This is his glory alone. And it will be divine manifestation to all the inhabitants of the world, but most importantly, to the Jews that are being redeemed at that point in time. This is God's power alone through his Son and through his anointed. The nation shall rush like the rushing of many waters, but God shall rebuke them, and they shall flee far off and shall be chased as the chaff of the wind. And like a rolling thing before the whirlwind, and behold, at evening tide trouble, and before the morning he is not. This is the portion of them that spoil us for the lot of them that rob us. Now let's break this down and see if it stands. Regarding Syria in particular, we can look to this prophecy in Isaiah 17. Behold, Damascus is taken away from being a city, and it shall be a ruinous heap. The destruction, this destruction was accomplished historically by the Babylonians in 600 B.C., but as the historic event is then used in connection with the end-time chasing of Israel, that is, the evening-tide trouble of verse 14, before the dawn of Messiah's rise into the political heavens, we have every reason to believe that the city will once again be involved in, the, in a calamity that brings all nations into the fray. Remember, this is also part of God's purpose when he is releasing the frog-like spirits. This is... The purpose of that is to gather all nations to Armageddon. For what? For a massive display of the Almighty's power. And it's going to include the destruction of those nations. I mean, this is what prophets and everything have been looking for for 6,000 years, is this final culmination of things. That's what this is. You know, it's going to take seven months to bury the dead, seven years to bury the weapons of war or burn them with fire as it says in Ezekiel. If you want perspective, uh, there were 50 million deaths in World War II with all the nations combined that were involved in that. Now, I'm not saying there's going to be 50 million dead in Armageddon, but 
that this is a time of Jacob's trouble since there never was a nation. That's difficult for me to really get on board with. I mean, Rome, when you look at Deuteronomy, was so destitute in its siege of Jerusalem when Rome came down in 70 A.D., women ate their own children. You know, when you look at the Assyrian invasion, uh, as we mentioned earlier in that week, that was bloodshed and massacre like we've never seen. So, you know, this is difficult for me to get on board with, but the verses speak plainly regarding this. This battle will be massive, and it must need to be massive because Israel can not save herself by her own hand, and it is also, most importantly, the place and time where God Himself alone, the Almighty, by miraculous divine power, will reveal Himself. God manifestation through His Son and His saints. That's what this is about. It's not going to be foggy to anybody. There'll be, there'll be no other possible way to explain it. And the Pope will be in desperation trying to say, this is Antichrist. We are not told if the destruction of Damascus is an offensive or defensive maneuver and whether the act is carried out by Israel or in concert with Syria's other archenemy, Turkey, uh, which is uh, still today even a uh, military ally of Israel, or the Tarshish power next door in Iraq. In any case, we must stress that this would be but one part of a complex political, economic, religious, and military puzzle being controlled by Yahweh, drawing the nations in off guard during a period of prosperity. Hence, when they shall say peace and safety, then come a sudden destruction. The results are plain to see in the balance of prophecy. Subsequent to the destruction of Damascus, Israel becomes the object of retribution. And often the case even when the retribution is aimed at the West, as we can see in Joel 4, number 1. The phrase, the glory of Jacob shall be made thin in verse 4. Israel shall be shaken as a tree so violently that only a few fruits remain from verse 6. Why? because thou hast forgotten the God of thy salvation. And unfortunately, that's a consistent indictment against Israel. And hast not been mindful of the rock of thy strength, which would be Messiah. Yet gleaning grapes, or a remnant, shall be left in it, as we see in verse 6. This is the time of Jacob's trouble, from Jeremiah 30, verse 7, when nations under the banner of Gog, from Ezekiel 38 and Daniel 11, will have all the political justification they need to invade the land, an expedient excuse perhaps to manifest their real aim to destroy Israel, to cleanse the Middle East of Western influence, democracy, to liberate the holy places as they see it, and seize upon the natural resources of the land, the spoil, in a bid for world domination. This is identified in Isaiah's prophecy as those which, quote, make a noise like the noise of the seas, and to the rushing of nations that make a rushing like the rushing of mighty waters. The nations shall rush like the rushing of many waters, but God, manifest at this time in the multitudinous Christ, will rebuke them. From verses 12 to 13. The United States hedging against Syrian policy, Bush's clear statement uh, from Richard Pearl, you heard, that uh, said that he is just as determined to remove Assad from Syria as he was Saddam from Iraq. The tension that is building up, the stalemate in Iran, and the turn of focus towards a nation that they could handle or that they could dominate or rope in. Uh, and they have plenty of cause for it, all the insurgents slipping across Syria into Iraq. 
in that guerrilla war is evidence that the prophecies of the latter days are coming to fruition right before our eyes. Now, the culmination of these events is Armageddon. A heap of sheaves, as it says in Micah 4, um, in a valley of threshing. You also get that from Joel 3. Upon the mountains of Israel, here Gog is destroyed by the whirlwind cherubim of Yahweh, Christ, and the saints. And it is these final antagonisms that we attentively watch for as signs, whether it be the humbling of Syria, a pseudo-peace, a democratic movement in the Middle East, a prosperous Israel relying upon the strength of her own hand, and the revival of Zionism, or this nationalistic spirit, which we are seeing if you study that. The ongoing leveraging of former Russian client states, Iran, Syria, Libya, Iraq, a decline in oil prices, or a combination of all these factors as we consider what might be the hooks in the jaws. But the point is, the call to judgment precedes Armageddon. I mean, when it says, I will, Behold, I will send you Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord. What does that beg? That Elijah has already been resurrected. That he is working behind the scenes with that remnant in Israel prior to Armageddon. So judgment is happening at the very least simultaneously, but most likely prior to God actually assembling and coming down. So the point is, if we're waiting to see those developments to get our house in order, we may be caught off guard. And in fact, I believe firmly you will be caught off guard if you're saving yourself and changing your life or certain things or putting off baptism. You know, all of these things uh, because you're waiting for the sign of the Son of Man coming to Jerusalem or in dramatic appearance. He comes as a thief. Judgment happens privately. I mean, there's a verse in Psalms that speaks of the Almighty able to cover and hide such a process. So again, with all of these things that I'm trying to link uh, and the order that I'm trying to do is do these contemporary events fit within our understanding, our framework of prophecy? Because that's the order of things. Not altering the framework as we see current events. That's very reactionary and unstable. But understanding the framework and then saying, does this fit? Is this significant? Now, let's look at and one verse that uh, we had read earlier in the week uh, on Sunday regarding uh, the multitudinous men. This idea, this notion should not be foreign to us. In fact, it was not foreign to Israel. If you look at Nehemiah 8.1, the first verse, obviously, verse 1, and all the people gathered themselves together as one man into the street. So, Verse after verse, I think, supports this idea of a multitudinous Christ. Many people as one, one in Christ. You know, God manifestation, all of these things. Christ in the saints, the multitudinous Christ. Now, if you look at this, you know, we've looked at Syria as a possible agitation for Gog in Europe. Certainly a Palestinian battle where Israel... Uh, gives a thumping to the Palestinians, would be another agitation. The U.S. dumping cheap oil on the market, Iraqi oil, would be a great agitation for Russia. You know, Russia may be sitting on uh, reserves of oil in western Siberia, even though they're already at uh, full, full, production, full production levels and declining. 
If people can buy cheap oil from somebody else, it doesn't matter if you have all the oil in the world. I mean, eventually, I mean, I shouldn't say it that way. Eventually, they'd have to come back around. But if somebody else has a supply at a cheaper amount and you have a supply at a more expensive amount, where's the world going to buy it? You know, we're good friends, Russia, but my economy depends on a lower price. So, if that happens, that would be another prime agitation. Combine all these things together, the spirit of democracy, uh, Western encroachment, uh, the loss of satellite states, or so it appears. I'm not completely convinced that that is, uh, it could be a ruse, in my opinion. But all of these things happening, uh, I think, can formulate a disposition in God that enough, we have to stop this. Now we must first recognize that the sixth vile prophecy of Revelation 16.12 indicates the drying up of the Euphrates or the Ottoman Muslim power from off the Holy Land no longer to dominate or influence its future course that Yahweh has set. This indeed has been the case when you look at the Ottoman Turk. There is no subsequent prophecy concerning the, re excuse me, the resurgence of Islam. There is no vile 6.5 to substantiate a latter-day flood of Muslim power over the land after this time. The latter-day flood, as stated by the prophets of Israel, comes from the north, as it did in the days of Ahaz and Hezekiah with such overwhelming force and number that not even the king of the south, the Tarshish power, can withstand him. The Arab nations, on the other hand, simply, as we've tried to uh, put forth to you this week, they do not have that capacity in real terms or really if you want to even look at future terms. Now, many people have said the latter-day Assyrian must be a literal Syrian or Assyrian. But you better change your timeline to Christ's return is another 75 to 200 years away because for Syria to be a power to overtake Israel, it's going to take many, many years. When you look at how long it takes to build an army and who are they would have to be able to overthrow, a mighty army such as Israel, and the young lines would need to be gone. And when you look at our timelines at the end of the 6,000 year and when you correct the Hebrew calendar, which needs to be corrected after you do that study, we're at the end of the 6,000 years by everybody's account, everybody's tracking. So therefore what? I mean, what is the 7,000 year, the millennium supposed to be? That is kingdom era. So we're really just uh, trying to figure out in terms of years, maybe even months, where we're at. Continuing here. The Arab nations, on the other hand, do not fit this bill. Saddam's Saddam Hussein's empty rhetoric concerning the Pan Am or Pan Arabian Confederacy vanished uh, quickly in this latest Gulf War, as did Nasser's before him uh, when the Elohim directed the missile strikes on the Egyptian airfields in 1967. The Arabs are rather in the midst of thinking the unthinkable, as a March 21st Newsweek article states. And it says this Is democracy suddenly sweeping the globe? The Ukraine, Georgia, Lebanon, including the Middle East, which has been immune for its immune to its allure for so long. This seemingly contagious spread of the frog-like spirit of democracy around the globe will place them, as well as all nations, in a position of belligerence. You know, this is what democracy does. Power of the people. It's really worldwide insubordination of a higher power. Is it not? An insubordinate spirit through the humanity of mankind, look at us together, bound together, voting, etc., in defiance 
of an authority that comes down and says, I am the king from reigning from Zion, and this is the law. Now, Iraq has been successfully overthrown. Yes, we have much turmoil back and forth. We have guerrilla warfare. We have Shiites contending against Sunnis. Um, we have all these things happening, but as a unified opposing army and a threat, that's not, we don't have that situation anymore. Now, look what's happening in Egypt. For the first time, uh, really in 5,000 years, though we're not completely uh, just, uh led along the path with this idea, but it's interesting. In The Economist from February 28, 2005. So Mr. Mubarak's announcement, coming just six months before his own pending re-election to an unprecedented fifth term, states that he wants to change the Constitution to allow for open, contested presidential polls. Landed as something of a bombshell. For the first time in their 5,000-year history, ordinary Egyptians may actually have a chance to choose their leader. The article continues by saying, more important perhaps is the fact that the very idea of reform has received endorsement at the highest level. Considering Egypt's position as the most populous Arab country and the historical leader of, the, of Arab nationalism, mounting momentum for change, there could have, uh, or this could have wide-ranging implications for the region. This is precisely the hope expressed by George Bush, America's president who has repeatedly called for Egypt to lead the region to democracy, just as it pioneered the path to peace with Israel. We know that from Daniel 11.42, God is, uh, or Egypt is a victim of God's advances. As it was told to me this week, I believe uh, King Fahd of Saudi Arabia has died. They recently have gone a, or undergone a huge public relations campaign called Power of the People, or better said in my terms, a democratic spirit. Uh, you see uh, the press releases and the media and the commercials. It shows Arab families, children, mothers and fathers, all picking up a stone from off the ground and saying, you know, this is your land. You own it. Get involved. Very much a, democ you know, uh, a democratic spirit. Uh, ownership. You know, this is your land. Fight against the, the radical fundamental uh, sects within our nation. You know, this is, uh, this is our territory. The Palestinians do remain a pricking briar, but will soon succumb uh, to a certain degree, and I believe with a, either an Israeli battle against them, to this pressure in the region, uh, Egyptian-American, and to a lesser degree, European, ironically. And so we're seeing the dramatic development of a pseudo-peace. Remember what I mean by pseudo-peace? Leveraged, coerced. Uh, it's not that people like each other, it's they have to get along with each other, whether it's economically, for Saudi Arabia to keep the price of oil up, uh, etc. We talked about early in the week Arab pylon. Absolutely, there is going to be um, Arab pylon effect, as I would call it, when God comes down. Now, here's a fascinating perspective brought to light by Graham Pearson, writing in 1970. It says, quote, It is possible that the pres presence of the Tarshish Britain and American powers in the land at this time will help in bringing about some great power stability in the area. There is a phrase used twice in Ezekiel, chapters 38 and 39, that may have some bearing on this. It says, I will turn thee back, in the RV it says, or about, and put hooks in thy jaws, or the rendering could be control of policies, and bring thee forth, from Ezekiel 38.4. I will turn thee about, and will lead thee on, and will cause thee to come up. In 39 verse 2. 
The AV appears to be here appears incorrect. So refer to the RV, the RSV. And the language suggests that there has been an arresting of God's progress, a driving back in order that he can be turned about and brought forth again. It may be that it is during this temporary reversal of God's progress that the land is able to dwell safely and at rest. Now think of what this could be. The rest of God's advances. I mean, you look at the Cold War. All of these nations are supposedly going westernized. You know, the Ukraine is a huge... I mean, that is, that's the heart of Russia right there. Going west um, to the EU, etc. You know, Kyrgyzstan has Afghanistan uh, with the United States there, Britain, and Canada, as I was reminded. So, naval support there. Uh, and also, I think, actual troops, uh, etc. Now you go to the Middle East, Iraq, the former client state. Iran is... Uh, boxed and being leveraged between the U.S. and Afghanistan and Iraq. And we've looked at our other maps. Syria is now being pressured, a former uh, Soviet client state. Libya squealed and gave in and turned in, you know, most of her developments for a nuclear bomb, etc. That was a former Russian client state. Uh, Egypt, you know, under Nasser and before that, that was former. Now, all those things have changed, have they not? I think that's something to consider when we look at this driving back before Gog is turned back around. Throw in democracy, throw in oil, throw in uh, a skirmish where Israel is victorious, a upsurge of Zionism, and I think you have all the makings for Europe binding and saying, enough. The invasion of the land and the taking of Jerusalem is a topic well known to all of us referred to in Ezekiel chapter 38, Zechariah 12 and 14, and Daniel 11. Ezekiel indicates that Persia, which is Iran, Ethiopia and Libya are in the northern confederacy, but not Egypt or Jordan, which is, in the Old Testament times, Edom, Moab, and Ammon. While Jordan becomes a haven for escaping Israelites in the time of Jacob's trouble, as you can read in Zechariah 14.5, and we looked at earlier in the week Isaiah 16.1-5, Egypt is taken from Daniel 11.42, and also reading the chapter in Isaiah 19. And then the final attack leads to the, quote, planting of the tabernacles of his palace in the holy mountain. Whose? God's. Egypt then is a focus of God's antagonism, not an ally or confederate. So what developments are happening today that might prove this future circumstance? Well, Thomas Friedman of the uh, New York Times writes this, March 13, 2005 regarding qualified industrial zones. From Baghdad to Beirut, the Middle East has seen a series of unprecedented popular demonstrations for democracy. Again, this frog-like spirit. There were, however, two street protests in December that got virtually no coverage, but were just as important, if not more. One took place in the Egyptian Nile Delta town of Mahala, and the other in the Suez Canal city of Ismaila. Both of these raucous Egyptian demonstrations which involved marches, strikes, denunciations of the government and appeals to Parliament, were triggered by President Hosni Mubarak's decision to sign the first substantial trade agreement with Israel since Camp David. The decision brought Egyptian workers from both areas into the streets. They were furious. They were enraged. Why? The answer is they were not included in the new trade deal with Israel. Now that's a new Middle East. On December 14th, Egypt, Israel, and the U.S. signed an accord setting up three qualified industrial zones, known as QIZs, in Egypt. The deal stipulated the following. 
any Egyptian company operating in any one of these QIZ zones that imports from an Israeli company at least 11.7% of the parts, materials, or services that go into the Egyptian company's final product can then export that finished product to the U.S. duty-free. This is a big deal for Egypt, which, unlike Jordan and Israel, does not have a free trade treaty with the U.S. So you see, a big part of democracy is what? Getting individual businesses to come into existence instead of state-run uh, or government-run entities. Free enterprise, etc. That's a big deal when you look at what sustains an economy to a certain degree. It's trade, it's commerce, it's very much part of the natural interest. And that is what is happening here. From The Economist, March 7, 2005, Walid Jamblat, the leader of Lebanon's Druze, or anti-Syrian contingency, told the Washington Post that, quote, Iraq's election was the Arab equivalent of the fall of the Berlin Wall. Now, so we see in this slide Israel is gradually being surrounded by Arab Muslim nations that have either made agreements with her or are quietly recognizing her, or at the very least are now becoming to come into a neutral stance in regards to her. Now, Brother Jerry Markwitz, and I have to add this here, has told me something very interesting. I don't know if you all, uh, and I had heard the term. Uh, but I didn't know what it was specifically related to. Have you heard of the Asher Project in Israel? The uh, discovery, potentially, of a massive oil reserve in uh, Israel proper, in the Asher area. And I hope I get these facts straight. Part of the um, thought behind this, or idea, is that you know, Israel as a nation sits topographically lower than its Arab nations. So the way to get to this oil would be via slant drilling. Now, slant drilling, of course, is going to go, uh, you know, at a, at a diagonal, uh, or at an angle, angle I should say. Uh, and what the Arabs will cry instantly is that you're stealing our oil because you're slant drilling underneath our countries. But if Israel, if that were to, if that were to... Um, come into reality, uh, you can see the effects that Israel being able to tap into her own oil supply, how, what, what that would have on not just her economy, but the world's perspective, correct? So that's something to keep an eye on. Asher Project, Israeli oil, uh, as Brother Markwith has directed me, put that into the, uh, to your Google search and kind of track that. Now, this brings us to our final point, which we're coming to. You know, for Israel to dwell in peace, to a certain degree, while forgetting the Almighty, forgetting her rock, which is Messiah, forgetting uh, that it is the Almighty that has regathered her, etc., relying upon the strength of her own hands, we see this peace and safety while this trespass is occurring before Christ's return. It is not because of Christ's uh, return that they are dwelling in this peace and safety which entices God. Not to say that this peace and safety, of course, will exist in a much higher context when Christ is in the land. But we're looking at a critical sequence of events. 
So we look at the walls today and we go, how can this possibly be? An interesting point is, is that security fence, I think is only 25 to 30% finished and it hasn't been worked on for a year and a half. It's been stalled. Now, I know there's been talk of restarting that, but you know, it'd be interesting to see if that is completed or not because it doesn't need to be completed, if that's the, that's the point. Now, we look at unwalled villages. This means open regions, hamlets, Jerusalem in the future, uh, as is so described in Zechariah 2.4. At rest, this is peace and security, used in Joshua and Judges and elsewhere to describe the land dwelling at rest after a period of strife. Judges, uh, etc., and you'll have to look at those verses on your own. Safely is securely, confidently, I would submit to you for this sequence of events, it's their own confidence. Without walls, it's a straightforward word for walls. Without bars or gates, bolts, locks, and doors, and have gotten cattle and goods. Uh, verse 13 adds to this silver and gold. It's a straightforward acquiring of livestock and possessions and economic prosperity. In the midst of the land, and as you see down there, brown driver, as those dwelling upon the navel of the earth, upon the mountainous country of Israel, central and prominent in the earth. Brothers and sisters, that can be nothing else than the West Bank, which we saw happen in 1967. Now, it would be tempting to say that this is a picture of Israel dwelling in the peaceful blessings of the kingdom age, for this is how they will be dwelling in that final picture. But the context makes it clear that it is not the time period under consideration. This is not the final picture of this being spoken of here. The Gagi invasion takes place before the setting up of the kingdom, before the great and terrible day of the Lord, and before Jesus is enthroned in Zion, having expelled the enemy there, as seen in Zechariah's prophecy of chapter 14, 2 and 3, thusly saying, For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken. Which city? And the house is rifled, and the women ravished, and half of the city shall go forth into captivity, and the residue, or the one-third, if you back up in Zechariah 13, of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. So the house of Israel shall know that I am the Lord, their God, from that day forward. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, now will I bring again the captivity of Jacob, which is a positive thing, and have mercy upon the whole house of Israel and will be jealous for my holy name after that they have borne their shame and all their trespasses whereby they have trespassed against me when they dwelt safely in their land and none made them afraid. The same indictment that we read about in Isaiah and other places. So we take this consistently and we go, what is this telling us? A time of peace and prosperity to a certain degree, not kingdom age, but to a certain degree. But the point is, they forget the Almighty and they look around and they say, look what we have accomplished with our allies, with our treaties. Look at Isaiah 30, verse 1, in regards to making treaties with Egypt. This is very pertinent when we look at the QIZ relationship, the zones there. Woe to the rebellious children, saith the Lord, that take counsel, but not of me, and that cover with a covering, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, that walk to go down into Egypt and have not asked at my mouth, to strengthen themselves in the strength of Pharaoh and to trust in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore shall the strength of Pharaoh be your shame and the trust in the shadow of Egypt your confusion. Trespasses. 
They are unfaithful, treacherous acts, as the word denotes, often used of idolatry. It is used of trusting in Egypt to defend Israel, as we see in the verses there. Whatever form the unfaithfulness takes place at this time, it is evident that they are not trusting in God to defend them. It is clear that today that they very much trust in the weapons of war and their leagues which they have made. The terrible time of the invasion is God's punishment for their unfaithfulness. We must also see another strand of the unfolding drama. There is to be a remnant who are purged through the fiery trials. This will be the third part as described in Zechariah 13.9 and the remnant described in Malachi chapter 3. It is in Malachi chapter 4 that speaks of the sinning of Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord. So out of a period of unfaithfulness, when the nation trusts in the arm of the flesh and is defeated, there will emerge a remnant who will form the nucleus of the kingdom. I'll make very clear that it is this remnant that goes forward into the kingdom as favored nation status. You look at the mortal priests in uh, Ezekiel 44 that cannot approach the Almighty directly, but are able to bring sacrifices from the mortal nations to this immortalized sons of Zadok who can officiate directly with the Almighty because they are spirit. So, uh, as, as Elpis and our pioneer brothers, uh, pioneer brothers have written on, a kingdom must have subjects. This natural remnant is this favored nation, but they are still mortal. Now we also, there's a whole other exhortation on when the tree of life is accessed again. It says in Isaiah, I believe it's 65, a child shall die at a hundred and an old man or a cursed sinner at uh, something of that nature. I think the world will return to that type of environment and certainly to access the tree of life will preserve your life if you are walking in the Almighty. And in the eighth day, then there will be that final quickening of no more flesh. So the sequence must be the Jews returned to Israel in unbelief as our generation has witnessed. At some time they dwelt safely, described at a time when they were yet trespassing against God. In the time between the resurrection and the going forth from Sinai, Elijah is sent to sound an alarm in Israel of the coming day of judgment and a ready and readying a remnant to receive Messiah. Israel is invaded by the Gagian Confederacy and many are scattered out of the land and many destroyed as we see in the verses, fleeing, you know, protect my outcasts, uh, as it is spoken of Jordan, Moab, and Edom. We see the uh, scattering into Egypt as well. The enemy in the land is destroyed. The borders of the first dominion are secured. A Jewish remnant survives who must then recognize their Savior in Zechariah 12.10. And also the tents of Judah are saved first. So that's another interesting point. Not all of Israel... Judah, those that are in the land first, is what I think that references, are saved first. Then when Christ comes back, redeeming that remnant, you have this preaching and the gathering of the rest of Israel, uh, you know, the, the lost ten tribes, so to speak, and then you have Ephraim, or the ten tribes, with Judah to make Israel a whole. When I brought them again from the people and gathered them out of their enemies' lands and am sanctified in them in the sight of many nations. This is from Ezekiel. Then shall they know that I am the Lord their God, which caused them to be led into captivity among the heathen, but I have gathered them under their own land and have left none of them any more there. 
Neither will I hide my face any more from them, for I have poured out my spirit upon the house of Israel, saith the Lord God. Ezekiel 39, 27-29. Now an important aspect is what in terms of precedent has always been used to force Israel to cry to Yahweh? Is it security and prosperity that has generated a return to the Almighty? A thankfulness? Unfortunately, and like with many of us, it's persecution. Is it her self-reliance that creates this dependency on the Almighty? Is it the deals and the treaties that she makes with her Arab neighbors, as we read about in Isaiah 30 with Egypt? You know, just a sidebar, I know we don't really have time for it, but Sharon has now allowed uh, the Egyptian navy and troops, uh, a deployment of commando troops equipped with night vision, etc., and helicopters to be amassed, Egyptian troops, to be amassed along the southern border of Israel there, uh, and also a Mediterranean base, El Arish, for their missile boats. This would contravene the 1979 Egyptian-Israeli peace treaty, but Sharon is going to allow that to happen. I mean, just continually poor decisions in the context of Scripture and where the dependency should be. I mean, this is in direct... uh, conflict with the peace, uh, Egyptian-Israeli peace treaty that said, you know, no Egyptian troops will be back in the Sinai there. So these circumstances have never in Israel's history, meaning this peace and safety deals on their own, affected the spirit that turns Israel to her God. In fact, it has consistently been the opposite when it relates to turning Israel's heart back to Yahweh. Only circumstances and events such as wars and captivity through the use of heathen nations that threaten or oppress Israel have generated the spirit of dependency and fleshy change of heart. Consider the cry from Egypt in Exodus 2.23, the cry of the Jews during the times of the judges time and time again when oppressed by enemies sent to punish them for their wickedness. When humbled and repentant, only then did Yahweh send them saviors. The cry of Israel underneath the, uh, under the Philistines, 1 Samuel 9.16, when Israel is again scattered into Egypt, Isaiah 19.20, So then we ask what event or series of events and by what nations will this pressure derive in order to turn Israel's heart back to God? This pressure must be great. It must be to such a certain extent that there is no hope to save themselves or to be saved by their allies. The time of Jacob's trouble is to reveal and refine the remaining remnant as we see in Zechariah 13.9 and in doing so cause Israel to look upon me whom they have pierced and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son. At this time the Almighty then will pour upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplications. As we further read in Zechariah 12, 11-14, and also into chapter 13, I know I'm going quick here, there is a complete and final purging of the idols, false prophets, and the unclean spirit from the land. And there shall be opened a fountain to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and uncleanness. Think about what that means. It is at this time that Israel's complete and final redemption takes place. We can see Ezekiel 36:24. I will sprinkle clean water upon you and you shall be clean. And Jeremiah 31:23. Make a new covenant with the house of Israel. And we beg the question, who is responsible for this pressure? We've said it over and over. And I think that it demands that we take, uh, you know, I'm fairly convinced 
In fact, uh, I don't see how there could be any other nation but a massive nation such as uh, Gog in Europe, Russia in Europe, to create this type of pressure, this type of destruction that is called for, that fits with this all nations roundabout uh, category uh, in order that this effect might be had on Israel. So I will make my holy name known in the midst of my people and will not let them, Israel, pollute my holy name anymore. As we finish up here, we'll just step back for context and then we'll close. Ezekiel 38, verses 12 and 13, tells us that Israel will have become prosperous at a time before Gog invades. This prosperity tempts Gog and his allies, Persia, Iran, Libya, Ethiopia, Confederate with Europe, France and Germany, all of the players. But it is also interest to Sheba and Dedan, nations of the Arabian Peninsula, to the, and to the latter-day trading nations. Today, those trading nations are being brought into the Middle East just as the student of prophecy anticipated. Over 30 years ago, Graham Pierce wrote this regarding the future entry of Russia into the European scene. He said this, Probably the next major happening the world will see is Russia taking Western Europe. I just have to fast forward while I'm reading this. This is Peter the Great. This is the will that he left for all successive leaders of Russia. Permits us to look upon Russia as called upon to establish rule over all Europe. We look upon our invasion of the West and the East as a decree of divine providence, which has already once regenerated the Roman Empire. We have a key connection. This is how they think. <laughs> We're a latter-day Roman Empire. We found Russia as a small rivulet, we leave it an immense river. Our successors will make it an ocean destined to fertilize the whole of Europe. Now, if we had time, I have all the points of his will after that. It's to deceive Germany, marry her princesses, work with Romania. I mean, it's a whole deceptive uh, modus operandi. Get a warm water port, all of these things. But this hasn't changed in the mindset of Russian leaders. From Lenin to Stalin to Khrushchev, to all the leaders that are in there, they play a role, whether it's to be weak and look like they're being westernized or to come back with an iron fist. This is what their backbone is and what guides them. So probably the next, and we'll close with this, probably the next major happening the world will see is Russia taking Western Europe and cooperating with the Vatican. This may take place before our call to judgment. It will probably bring about a new disposition of the major powers with the U.S. and Britain re-establishing themselves in Israel, the Middle East, and possibly Egypt. Well, why was he thinking this way? Well, because Scripture tells us. And whether you were in the 1800s uh, or in 1970 here, you can understand this from Scripture and get this picture, this vision. This will put the world power groups or powers into two groups, King of the North and the King of the South, with an east-west line along the Mediterranean between them. This would provide a fulfillment of the, quote, turning back of Gog, as we talked about just uh, earlier. A temporary pulling back on the world chessboard before his coming forth like a storm, like a cloud to cover the land. Something of this sort must happen for the merchants of Tarshish and the young lions to be present in the land when the northern invader comes for them to be able to say, Art thou come? Two other factors contribute to the peace and security that develops for a short time. One is the influence of the Christ community behind the scenes, namely Elijah and his work in Malachi 
4, 5, uh, favorable to Israel, nurturing this remnant. And the other is the effectiveness of Israel with this providential help. Whatever this means, but there, it, it means that there must be a time of peace and rest which Israel in their own mind has, has established on their own strength. This allows the prosperity described in Ezekiel 38 to develop. So brothers and sisters, I know we're at the end of our time here. Prophecy is something that I believe is critical to faith. It's critical for the vision. It's critical to sustain us when the people and the emotions fail us. You know, the emotions bring us to these great feats. You know, we have fight or flight as a natural impulse uh, that's resonant in us. We can do great many things, but once everybody, we look around and everybody's not on board with this, we can sink as well. And we can get bogged down in the stresses. The vision is for perseverance. And I'm, what I've tried to present to you this week is that we are witnessing this, vi- uh, this vision right before our eyes. And all the dates have been fulfilled. You know, all the timelines have run out. You look at the, excuse me, you look at the calendars and we're at the 6,000 years. We know that Christ returns in the sixth vial. We know that that precedes Armageddon. We're seeing the developments right there if we will just look and link it to our understanding of Scripture. So as Paul says in the New Testament, you know, quit yourselves like men. You know, we need our pillars, we need our brothers to be talking about this again and hold on and stay salty for these last few days. This is it. You know, our body is starting to fall apart. We're losing more and more members. But it takes a tenacity and a vision to say, I will hold the line here in my ecclesia, in my family, so that we can preserve a lampstand to a certain degree when Christ returns. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Russia then gives them oral, and the U.S. blocks Yeah. It's got all the makings, doesn't it? I've got to speak to him. Uh, yeah, and there's a verse in Isaiah that says, the walls of my salvation, and that's not a literal wall, that's... <laughs> yeah. If you're relying upon, you know, it could be more symbolic or metaphorical. I think that's a great point. I'd love to hear that aspect to incorporate it. I know. Thank you.